1: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think Beyond Your Plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. My guest today is Faith Bodinger, and she is a research associate at the National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Faith, welcome. Thank you. I wanted to have you as a guest today, Faith, because I've been very impressed with the work that's come out of your center looking at commercialism in schools. And I think probably the first time I became aware of commercialism in schools is when my son started kindergarten and there was a Pepsi calendar hanging in his classroom. And being a dietitian, I thought, hmm, I wonder why Pepsi has a calendar in a kindergarten classroom. Why would Pepsi have a calendar in a kindergarten classroom?
0: Well, Pepsi probably sent it out to the school or to the teachers, and the teacher, probably not thinking too hard about it, put it up. Pepsi would want it to be there to let kids know about the product, to put it in front of them. To what
1: extent are we seeing commercialism in schools today?
0: It's really a lot. It's just one of those things that's, growing incrementally. I was talking this morning to my colleague Alex Molnar about it, and we were saying that it's been around at some level for a really long time, over 100 years, but it's just grown so much. So 100 years ago, our society wasn't really a commercial culture, Hmm. but after World War II, it became much more of a commercial culture, and so advertising in schools increased. And then later on in the Reagan era, there was deregulation that became kind of the norm. Mm -hmm. And so the barriers were down, the barriers that had been in place because of custom or because of policy in general in terms of advertising were down. And the school market is such a desirable market for advertisers and corporations Mm -hmm. that they try to get in as much as possible. And now, in particular, what with the economy the way it is and uh, funding for schools down, schools are really looking for whatever funding that they can find. Um, And there are marketing companies that are trying to make the connection between corporations and schools and states that are making laws, allowing for across-the-board advertising on school buses, for instance. So it's just incrementally growing.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, you have a PhD in social psychology, and you've taught social psychology, communication. You have an interest in persuasion and social influence processes at work and in advertising and marketing contexts. How did you get involved with a national center that focuses on education policy?
0: Well, I needed a job, basically. I had moved to Arizona and moved here for personal reasons and was looking for a job and saw one with uh, in education, and thought, gee, that would be interesting. You know, that would be an interesting application mm-hmm. of the kind of things I know about. And I've kind of always been like that. You know, I've done social psychology in a sociology department, in a communication department. You know, talking to anthropologists, whoever it might be, because it it's one of those things that really applies everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it it does in this field. I mean, it's really amazing.
1: Well, you and your colleague Alex Mulner, who you mentioned, have produced many reports about the commercialism in schools. And I think that your background in social psychology and persuasion really lends itself well to recognizing the trends in schools. And I think that, okay, so as a parent I go into the classroom, I see the Pepsi calendar, and of course the soda machines are right in your face. But you and your colleagues have, in your reports on the commercialism trends, you've looked at different categories of school commercialism, and I wonder if you could talk about maybe some of the commercialism or the advertising and marketing techniques that might not be so apparent. Sure,
0: and I want to give credit where credit is due. I've been working on these reports for the last five years, but Alex has been doing it since the mid-'90s. He really started this field, and he's the one who originally started thinking about it in his very methodical way in terms of coming up with categories so that we can understand all of the ways that schools are commercialized so we've got seven categories that we use that we used to think about the different kinds of programs that go on in school so like you said the, the soda machine and the, the calendar might be really obvious other things that are that are also obvious would be what we call appropriation of space so taking school space and appropriating it for marketing use, like naming rights for a gym, um, mm. a scoreboard that says Coke, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of things. There's some kind of wild things now where they're wrapping lockers with advertisements or putting them on uh, tables in the cafeteria. Those kind of things are, are really pretty obvious.
1: Maybe oh, my. A little,
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's pretty scary, huh? Yeah. Maybe a little less obvious is that when you have – Let's say a school has an arrangement with Coke, so you might have a Coke calendar then in the um, in the classroom. But also, what you're going to have are you're going to have the the vending machines going to say Coke, and all the bottles and cans are going to say Coke or going to be Coke products nowadays because there's self regulation by the beverage companies in terms of what's sold specifically in the vending machines. It might be Dasani water instead right. of Coke, but it's still it's branded
1: exactly. Yeah.
0: So you've got that going on. And those things are really, to my mind, really scary because a, a contract like that will run the child's whole experience in school from yeah. when they're a little kid to when they graduate. So that's all that they'll see in school. Yeah. So that was appropriation of space, but I also touched on another category that we use, which is exclusive agreements. So mm-hmm. that's very typical with the soda companies, with the bottling companies. There'll be exclusive agreements where a school can only sell that, yes. that company's product. Sponsored educational materials might be something that would be less obvious. So, oh, gee, there was a big flap this summer, spring and summer, I guess it was, over sponsored educational materials that Scholastic was producing. So I'm sure you're familiar with Scholastic Mm -hmm. from the books. Sure. Right, the book sales. And, you know, we tend to think of it as this you know, revered old company. I mean, I remember them from when I was little. I would, you know, bring home the order form and order 12 books every month. It was exciting, right? Yeah, it was totally exciting. But they've been involved in producing sponsored educational materials for all kinds of companies. And when they do that, they're really providing biased materials and providing them to teachers. They used to have them on the Scholastic website is materials for teachers, freebies. And, you know, they they look nice a lot of times. These materials, they're colorful and they've got activities or what have you, but they're presenting the sponsor's perspective. And so the flap this summer started with, I'm not even sure who it was. It must have been an environmental group seeing that Scholastic was producing and marketing a fourth grade curriculum for the coal
1: industry. That's right. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. And presented coal and, and, and it presented, if I'm, if I remember correctly, a variety of energy sources, but basically showed that coal was the one, you know, the really good one mm-hmm. and didn't address any of the potential downsides mm-hmm. of coal. You know, there, there are health issues, there are mining issues, you know, there are all kinds of issues. and, It wouldn't, right, because the coal industry doesn't want that to be discussed. Right. I mean, they shouldn't. They're a business. It's what they're in it to make money. Right. Um, But whether they belong in schools is another story. And so when that became apparent that that's what they were doing, there was action by environmental groups and the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood and some other activist groups to... Get Scholastic to pull the curriculum, Mm -hmm. which it did, and then there was further pressure by CCSE for them to pull back on their on their production and marketing of sponsored educational materials. Mm -hmm. Those are things that parents wouldn't necessarily notice.
1: Exactly. Okay. What else?
0: Well, let's see. Fundraising
1: kind of stuff. Oh yes.
0: Fairly obvious.
1: Right. I guess.
0: But but also very persuasive pervasive.
1: Absolutely. The children come home with branded items that they then sell in their neighborhood. I know I've seen my own children come home with those kinds of things as well.
0: Yeah. And you know then there are some other things that are happening lately that I've noticed. These contests that drive me out of my mind. Yes. Because they just strike me as so unfair. So for instance, Coles had a contest, Avery had a contest not sure if Google might have one, too. Oh, well, they have the, the Doodle for Google, which is different. It's not fundraising. Well, it is fundraising. It has a fundraising component. I shouldn't say that. So what will happen with these contests is that a few schools, you know, maybe it's one school, maybe it's five schools, maybe it's 20 schools, can win a lot of money. But a lot of schools participate,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: oftentimes what they're participating in is trying to get Facebook friends Mm. or the company, um, oh or that kind of thing. And, and you know, these schools, they want to win, you know, and so they get everybody involved in trying to promote the company. So they do. Mm-hmm. But then so many of them don't win. Right. And I talked to the principal of a school that had won the Coles contest, and, I mean, they did great things with that money. I think it was $25,000. But, right. you know, there are all these schools that didn't win. Uh-huh. and they put forth a lot of effort
1: and they got nothing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the the Avery program had various levels of winning, but most of the participants don't win
1: anything. Well, that's really interesting. You know, the one from a dietitian's perspective, the fundraising avenues that concerned me the most uh, had to do with things like a McTeacher night, for example, where the students would be encouraged to eat at a fast food restaurant, which we know, I mean, we've got the data showing that the more, you know, if you want to gain weight, just eat at a fast food restaurant on a more regular basis. That's a pretty simple way to get a lot of extra calories and sodium and fat. Sure. So there's the McTeacher nights where the students go to the fast food outlet. The teachers work Again, after working a long day in the classroom, they go and they work behind the counter. And then a certain percentage, and it varies from what I understand Mm -hmm. when I was doing the research on this, so then a certain percentage of the sales then go to the school. And from a school's perspective, from a school that is struggling, getting a chunk of change to, say, build a playground, for example, or get a piece of playground equipment, that's a big deal. And so for those of us who are concerned about commercialism ties like this, as a dietitian, I'm concerned that children would be encouraged to eat fast food, for example. But, um, you know, your center certainly looks at commercialism from a, a much broader perspective. How do we respond to school administrators or teachers who say, what's the big deal here? The kids are going to eat there anyway, and we're getting money for the school.
0: Yeah, it's a rough thing because the schools are so pressed for funds, and it's really easy to get caught up in these proposals that seem like they'll bring in a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And like you say, the argument is, well, the kids will see advertising anyway, so let's get something out of it, and kids are really savvy, and it doesn't affect them much, and it's, it's worth it. But that logic is really faulty. So to start off, the payoff for allowing commercial activities in schools often looks so much better than it really is. Mm-hmm. Marion Nestle, in the early 2000s, did a study of soda contracts, and she found that in a district where it sounded as if they were bringing in so much money, it ended up being $15 per student for the year, mm-hmm. which is not that much money. you know. No. And then when she did the comparable analysis of how much the company was making, it was something like $25,000 a month. I mean, it was outrageous, the difference yeah. between what the school's getting and what what the company's getting. And now Public Citizen has been researching what some of the largest school districts in the country are doing with advertising and marketing programs, what they're bringing in. And again, these things, they sound like a lot of money, but they're not really. So it's like, of the annual budget or 0.01% of the annual budget. And it's like not even 1%, it's 0.01%. It's really so little, so it it sounds good, but then it ends up being smoke and mirrors and it's not very much. And so schools will contract with a marketing company to bring in advertising. And by the time they they pay the advertiser, the uh, marketing company, and it's all said and done, they're really not getting as much money as it looked like.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It seems like, based on some articles that I've seen and also public citizens' research, that schools aren't, then the districts aren't doing really the research that they need to know to understand what they'd be getting, you know? Like, they're sort of persuaded by the thought, oh, there's money.
1: Exactly. You know? but
0: not really understanding what that money is going to be and whether it's worth the cost mm. um, but- and the according to our research and our thinking about this issue, there really are costs, you know, costs to the kids.
1: Yeah, let's talk about those. I I, I wanted to ask you that because I've spoken to so many educators who don't see the cost. They only see the dollars coming in, even if they're a very small percentage. They're more than they have now. So I think perhaps the answer to... Having more commercialism in schools is indeed to help administrators see that there is a cost. So if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Faith Boninger, and she is a social psychologist who works as a research associate at the National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and her work really focuses on commercialism in schools and the true educational cost. So let's talk about those costs. What are they?
0: Okay, so you mentioned educational costs and there are psychological costs and also physical health-related costs. So let's start with the um, the psychological ones. Okay. Basically, at advertising, sort of by definition, I mean, this is what it's about, right? It makes children want more, makes them eat more when the advertising is about food. It makes them think that their self-worth and their confidence can and should come from commercial products. Mm. And so what it does is heighten their insecurities intentionally. So, I mean, you can think about all the, the ads for Axe and Old Oh, Spice sure. So oh, forth, sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. So instead of showing kids that their insecurities are normal for their age, you yeah. know, it makes them specific to them. This is really a problem that you have, and you can solve it with our product so, it's tightening their insecurities and then offering them kind of a false solution.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It distorts their gender socialization by hypersexualizing them, yes. uh, both boys and girls, and it leads to the displacement of the development of values and activities other than those associated with commercialism. And all that's been shown to have um, negative psychological effects. Mm-hmm. And particularly interesting, I think, with respect to this, is that adolescents typically haven't fallen under any of the protected categories for advertising. So there's some notion that little kids should be protected from advertising, but, you know, once they're over 12, they're on their own. Right. But adolescents may actually be more vulnerable than younger children because of their developmental state. So they're more
1: susceptible
0: to advertising that targets their identity formation um, and their reduced impulse control.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, let's talk about some other costs in addition to the psychological. You mentioned health costs. Yeah,
0: so the health costs really come in two forms. So one is with respect to toxic personal kit products, and I'll mention this first because it's a smaller category. One of the categories that are advertised fairly heavily to kids, like I mentioned, is the personal care products like the Axe and the Old Spice and so forth.
1: And Montana
0: body sprays. I mean, who knows? All kinds of things. And it turns out that those products have chemicals in them that the users don't know that they have. Right. And chemicals that might increase their risk for certain health problems.
1: Sure. Um, The endocrine.
0: Ingredients and so forth.
1: The endocrine disrupting chemicals.
0: Exactly, exactly. So the Environmental Working Group did a couple of studies that I I thought were absolutely fascinating where they looked at, looked at 17 popular perfumes and some body sprays for boys, and they found that these products contained secret chemicals that nobody knows what they are, right, because they're trade secrets, mm-hmm. also sensitizing chemicals that can lead to allergic reactions, also known hormone disruptors. And then chemicals that are known but haven't been assessed for safety by um, industry or government. So they contain all kinds of nasty things. And then they did another study that looked at blood and urine samples from teenage girls. And they found that in the blood and urine samples were all these kind of chemicals that you wouldn't want in your body. Mm. Oh, my. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of a cost as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And then the other area of health harms or health costs has to do with obesity and the kinds of foods that kids are learning to like and to eat. Right. And food products are the most advertised class of products to children.
1: It's interesting. I just want to interject here because one of the categories of school commercialization that we did not talk about in our list has to do with those incentive programs Right, And, you know, I remember the reading program. Like, it wasn't good enough to, to have that good feeling that you get just for reading a book and having accomplished that. You had to get a little ticket then that you could go to one of the pizza establishments and get pizza. And, of course, you didn't go by yourself. You went with your family. And so it, it seemed to me that the pizza company was winning and the students were losing, both from this idea that, psychologically they were no longer getting the internal reward mm-hmm. from having accomplished a task, but then they were also going to a place where they were going to eat food that was going to contribute negatively to their health.
0: Yeah, and you know, and part of this is about the long-term effects, too. I mean, yeah. they're going to go and they're going to eat that. what was it at the time, Pizza Hut, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, we had that in first grade, I remember it. Although we, I don't think we ever actually got to the Pizza Hut. Hmm. But yeah, so they're going to eat it at the time, but then when they're older and they see Pizza Hut or they're, you know, going to go for pizza, they'll remember that that company was associated with the good time that they had when they were
1: a kid. Exactly.
0: And it's also given some credibility by the school.
1: Right, exactly. So I'm really
0: concerned about these long-lasting effects, these long-lasting attitudinal effects that, I mean, that's what the advertising companies are looking for, right? They want to right. build that class of kids who are going to love them forever.
1: Exactly. Was there a third cost, the psychological, the health, and was there a third?
0: Yeah, the um, educational harm. Um, okay. And that's what we focused our report on that we recently published. So advertising will take up school time, you know, and displace other educational activities that It'll also contradict what students learn in classes. So when you have Pepsi throughout the school, that's clearly contradicting what kids are learning in their science classes, which is not to drink a lot of Pepsi. Right. And then the other aspect of that is the discouragement of the development of critical thinking skills.
1: That's exactly what I had hoped we would get to.
0: Uh Aha. Okay. So by critical thinking we're talking about a variety of skills like um problem solving, decision making, inductive and deductive inference making, divergent thinking, evaluative thinking, reasoning. Those are, you know, what the researchers talk about, but really what what we mean is that kids or people who are critical thinkers can take different points of view. They can identify and understand and evaluate the assumptions and logic behind an argument or a solution to a problem they can generate alternative solutions it's really really thinking right right and that kind of thinking isn't going to be promoted by commercial programs because any company that's doing its job for its investors is out to make a profit it's not out to teach kids how to really carefully evaluate what it's telling them. Right. You know, it's it's inconsistent with what they're trying to do. So, for example, with that whole curriculum that we talked about earlier, they're they're not going to bring up the the potential health threats or the potential environmental threats.
1: Mm -hmm. They don't
0: really want kids thinking about that.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And so when you've got commercial programs in schools, so – Sponsored educational materials like that, or sponsorship of programs and activities like the um, pizza, um, the Pizza Hut thing that you were talking about before, that's inconsistent with an environment that promotes critical thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm very concerned about that, and I also think that we see that then that those lack of critical thinking skills. Materializing later as adults, and you think, why are people making these decisions in the voting place? Or why aren't people connecting the dots between doing one thing and and having a a negative consequence? Uh, Especially for example in agricultural systems, for example, or health situations where children are making decisions in school and then they are repeating them as adults, but they're not connecting the dots to broader societal issues, is that related to the fact that they're not taught critical thinking skills or they're not really developing those critical thinking skills in a classroom that has a lot of commercialization? I
0: think that it's all related, yeah. I mean, in teaching, a really big issue is the transfer of skills. Uh So you can teach kids to think critically in a science lab, but it's another thing to teach them that the same skills that you do in your science lab, you can take to something else completely, you know, and that you can take out of school. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's not intuitive and it's hard enough. These days, I think the whole kind of educational environment doesn't necessarily encourage critical thinking skills, but it's, so it's its hard enough. And if you've, what you really need is to have an environment that is promoting the generalization of these thinking skills, giving kids practice and models for how to take maybe what they learned on a science lab and do it in other situations in the school and take it out of the school, you know, so that then they can see, oh, this idea of understanding the assumptions of an experiment is actually relevant to understanding the assumptions behind proposal
1: for a law, for instance. Well, Faith, you know, our time has run out, and I want to leave our listeners with a source where they can learn more about these reports, because I fear that we were really only able to scratch the surface, but there are a series of reports at your website, annual reports on schoolhouse commercialism trends, as well as the educational cost of schoolhouse commercialism, and I believe, if I heard you correctly during an earlier question, that... Your next report was going to be on food nutrition specifically in schools. Is that correct?
0: It's going to be on the health harms, yes.
1: Okay, wonderful. So what is the best website for our listeners to find this information?
0: It's the website for the National Education Policy Center, which is nepc.colorado.edu. And then on that website, there's a CIRU link. CIRU is the Commercialism and Education Research Unit. And if they click there, they'll find all of our reports.
1: Wonderful, and I'll make sure we have that link available on our website for the, at KOPN as well. Uh, we've been speaking with Faith Boninger, and she is a social psychologist and a research associate at the National Education Policy Center at the University of Colorado at Boulder and the, on the co-author of several excellent reports on the educational and health costs of schoolhouse commercialism. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Colorado. Columbia, Missouri. Say thank you so much for being my guest and for your important work.
0: Hi, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.